12, beginning in verse 4. Our text for this morning goes through verse 17. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as they as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and, may be, and by it may be defiled. That there is uh, be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the privilege this morning of gathering around your word. Father, we thank you for the challenge that it brings into our lives. Father, we we thank you that the scripture is not an echo chamber. That it doesn't just say back to us what we want to hear. But Father, it challenges our thoughts. It challenges our hearts, our emotions, our actions. Father, it causes us by your grace and for your glory through the gospel and the abiding presence of the spirit to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, often this process is a difficult one, a painful one, a one that is. hard to navigate. Father, we pray that you will be compassionate to us, gracious to us, merciful toward us, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we continue our Jesus is better than series, we see here in Hebrews 12, 4 through 17, that Jesus is a better discipline. Jesus is a better discipline. No one likes talking about discipline of the positive or the negative kind. Um, As we fast approach the end of the year and we begin moving toward January 1, everybody's getting ready for what? New Year's resolutions. Also known as that thing I'm going to try to discipline myself in and radically fail by Valentine's Day. That's that's what that's also known as. 
And when we start talking about discipline in our lives, whether it's the negative kind of discipline where something comes on us and something comes against us that 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 creates a, a tension or a pain or a dissuasion away from behavior or positive discipline where we set up some sort of habit in our lives that will improve our lives, that will make things better in our lives. When we honestly evaluate the concept of discipline, discipline is not an enjoyable thing on either one of those sides. There's a reason why we jokingly talk about New Year's resolutions and how radically people fail at them so quickly. Because most of the time, people set up for themselves positive disciplines in their New Year's resolutions. That's, that's what they do. And it's, you know, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to exercise a little bit more. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to manage my resources better. I'm going to manage my time better. I'm gonna, you know, whatever it may be. And it's usually something very positive, something very helpful. And, and if it's positive and it's helpful, why do we fail at it so miserably? Well, because positive, helpful things are hard to do. Just like receiving negative things to try to stop bad behavior is also hard to do. You know, I don't know what method of discipline your parents used in your coming up. I was a part of a generation where, you know, um, there, timeouts were for basketball games, you know, um, like that, that was not in my mom's vocabulary. I, I, she wasn't my coach. And so we didn't, that's not the language that she used, you know. Now she had these really weird go-go gadget arms with like a whip on the end of it. And I knew that, like that, that was a grand experience for me. And um, I was like, I know you're tall, mom, but how can you reach me from four rooms over? I don't understand how this is working. Um, did not enjoy that. that. That was not pleasant. That was not pleasant at all. But it drove away from me certain behaviors that needed to be driven away from me. Negative discipline is not enjoyable. Positive discipline is also not enjoyable. I'm going to exercise and make myself healthy. You're like, yes, this is a good thing to do. And then I'm going to go sign up for the gym membership and I'm going to get with the guy and they're going to do all the stuff and give me an assessment and give me a workout. And then you hit that first workout. And like the old comedian used to say, I tried lifting weights, but they're so heavy. It's really hard. Positive disciplines are really hard. Negative discipline is really hard. No one likes discipline. No one does. But in the Christian life, there is a call to discipline, a well-oriented life, a life that moves away from those things that are displeasing to God, those things that move us toward the things that are pleasing to God. And these things come with great difficulty. And they come with such difficulty that the writer to Hebrews starts with an incredible statement. There is this severe call to resist sin. Severe call to resist sin. Listen to what he says in verse four. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, pause. We've already read it and it's right there in front of you. You can read the next five words. But, but if you didn't know what the next few words were going to be and someone in the Bible were saying to you, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. What do you think they're about to say? Martyrdom. Witness. Being faithful in the world, receiving pain from the outsiders because of your testimony for Jesus Christ. Nope. No. Notice what he says. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. 
Say, Phil, that's hardcore. It really is. Yeah. It echoes the words of Jesus in the Gospels where he says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Because it would be better for you to go through this life maimed and enter into the kingdom than to go through this life whole and be cast into the darkness. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And he repeats the same mantra. There is a call all throughout scripture to have a severe response to sin. And the problem for generations, not just for the last little while, for generations. In fact, you could make a strong argument the whole existence of Christianity. The, the great problem has been an unwillingness of a vast majority of participants in the Christian faith to take seriously this severe call to resist sin. Every generation, someone writes about what the great battle of their generation is. This is the great enemy that we have. This is the great thing that we should stand against. And whatever it may be, you can fill in the blank and you can kind of move through history and see what the blanks are. They usually have a fairly common theme, tyranny, oppression. You know, you just kind of find a list and they're in the history books. Very rarely do you have someone writing the true, deep, abiding reality of what the great problem, great enemy, great battle of the Christian is. And it's myself. It is my own abiding sinfulness that rebels against the things of God. And if we would take with just partial commitment the battle against our own sinfulness that we take with every other thing in the world that we think is off and is bad and that needs correcting and needs solving, the Christian church would be vastly more like Jesus. It would resonate with an outward holiness that would be unparalleled. But we don't. We look out of ourselves and the world and we see how bad the world is. And we say, okay, I have to find all the causes that I need to tie myself to. And I need to find ways to fight all of the bad things that are happening out there in the world. And should we do that? There's plenty of verses that say we should battle against bad things in the world. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But it goes hand in hand with making sure that I wage war. Another metaphor used about this very topic in the scripture. I wage war against my own sin. That I put to death the deeds of the flesh. Another metaphor used in the scripture about this very issue. And when the apostle Paul talked about it, when he talked about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, particularly in the book of Romans. This language of putting it to death was in the context of warfare, making war, waging war with the flesh, with our sin. And this is in a first century Roman context written to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. And so their immediate vision of waging war would have been the battalions and the legions of Roman soldiers with their short swords. Coming face to face with their enemy. Seeing them, smelling them, feeling them. When they slayed them, 
their death would have fallen on their person because they would have been in such close proximity with the person that they had just killed. This is the vision that they would have had of waging war. It is a severe, intense, personal engagement. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, the writer to the Hebrews says, and echoes Paul's sentiment. There needs to be a striving against our sin. And then this is when the writer to Hebrews makes the transition to begin talking about discipline. And he begins speaking about the father's discipline in our lives. So we have to keep this in the context of this is striving against our sin. Because I've heard people take this text and say, well, you know, It could be talking also about positive discipline and building those good characters in your life. Not when it starts out talking about shedding blood over trying to get rid of your sin. It's not. This is clearly a context of negative discipline, driving away those things that are not pleasing to the Lord. And so we need to keep that in mind as we walk through this and we speak about the father's discipline. So in verse five, it says, or have you forgotten the exhortation? So then the writer to Hebrews cites Old Testament passages. You have some Job and some references to Proverbs and a few others. And he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he discipline and he scourges every son whom he receives. There's an intensity here. But there's a call. There's a call to not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. Why why would that have to be the first warning? If we're going to have a conversation about, okay, I need to be severe with my sin. And I need to be willing to get to the point of shedding blood to to have my sin pushed away from me so I can become conformed to the image of Christ. And I need to take my sin with the utmost seriousness. And I need to wage war against the darkness that is within me. And, and if we're going to use all those metaphors and talk about all that stuff, why would the very first thing be, don't take lightly the discipline of the Lord? Why would we start there? You would think that the severity of sin statement would be enough. And we, hey, that's pretty serious. Like we're already on red alert. Like we know this is going to be a big deal. Why would we start there with this idea of don't take it lightly? Because there's a tendency in thoughtful, educated biblically literate Christians to know and understand, and Hebrews has touched on it a lot, to know and understand that salvation is a sovereign gift from God, that I don't work for it, I don't earn it, and I technically can't really do any wrong work to lose it because it is a gift that God has given me. And there's a tendency, and you can see the line of this tendency running throughout all of church history, but particularly around the time of the Reformation and later, there's a tendency when people have this strong orientation of salvation being God's gift, which is entirely true, to just kind of shrug their shoulders at their war with sin. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. If I'm in, I'm in. If I'm out, I'm out. God saved me, he's going to save me. Doesn't really matter what I do. Doesn't really matter what I don't do. And yeah, God's bringing some stuff in my life, trying to change me. But, you know, I mean, doesn't matter. I'm in. You say, no, I I would never say that. You know what? Almost nobody ever actually says it. We find that attitude in how we actually live our lives by taking lightly the discipline of the Lord. 
And that's why this warning is here. Don't regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. Why? Because it could be showing you something that is cataclysmic, and we'll get to it in just a second. The Lord, it says, as we continue through the section, disciplines those whom he loves. Friends, I'm going to go ahead and say this because the text is going to say this for us. So we're just going to get it out there. If you walk through the vast majority of your Christian life, sinning in whatever manner you want to, and there's never any meaningful conviction in your heart to move away from that sinning, very likely you don't have the Lord. It says that here and it says in a whole bunch of other places. God disciplines those whom he loves. God will not allow the Christian to abide in their sinning and sinfulness for long stretches of time. He just won't. He is a loving father who desires what's best for his children. And just like a loving earthly father, as they use the metaphor in the example here, cares enough for their children to discipline them, to try to move them away from those paths of life that would not be beneficial and would not be valuable. And though it may seem severe and it may feel severe at the time while it's happening, there comes a point later where there's a recognition that was for my best, that was for my good, that was because they loved me. And now I can appreciate what they were doing for me then, even though I didn't appreciate it at the time. I don't know if it's happened to you yet in your life. I'm now old enough for it to have happened to me. There were two very distinct moments in time. A little while back where I called my mom. And I called my dad. My parents were divorced and remarried very young in my life. So I lived with one and not with the other. But both of them had engagement in my life. And so I called my mom, called my dad. Conversation was almost exactly the same for both of them. Hey, thank you for all those times you did all that horrible stuff that I hated while you were doing it. I really appreciate it. And it's taken me like 20 some odd years to get there. But now I see and understand it might be because my kids were getting older at the time. And I realized, wow, I was horrible to my parents. Like, it, it, my life has been a great gauge for, for like, like I, man, I can't believe my parents are doing this to me. Wow, I'm never going to do that when I have kids. And then when I had kids, I'm like, oh, oh, I get it now. <laughs> totally understand. And, but they're not nearly as bad as I was. Hey, I'm so sorry. Y'all should have done more. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of how it was for me. And there's an appreciation, it says it here in the text while they kind of walk through this about parents disciplining their kids for their good and for their benefit as they seem fit. And there's this reality that God does this. He disciplines those that he loves. He deals with us as sons, as children. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God does this in love. We are now God's children because we have come into his family through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And it says here plainly in verse 8, if you are not disciplined, you are not children. God does not let people stand in their sin perpetually and claim to be in his kingdom. He doesn't allow it. He doesn't allow it. And it's very similar to if you're out in public. There was a 
thing that happened a, a long time ago where I was out it was before BC. It was BC before children. And, and I was out in public and I was doing a thing and I was working with some kids uh, with a, a group that I, that I had and we were doing some stuff. And there was another group of kids that were there with somebody else and they were a bit more unruly. And a person, but our groups were kind of working in proximity toward one another. And the, the person who was running the event came to me because those kids were kind of near where the kids I was watching were. And they said, hey, man, why don't you get your, your kids in check over there, man? Why don't you do something about that? I said, I'm not doing anything about that because they're not my kids. These are my kids. And I'm making sure they stay in check. I don't discipline kids that aren't my kids. But if you are without discipline, verse 8, of which all have become partakers. Hear that. There's no exclusionary clause here. Then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God's discipline is evident and present in the lives of all those who are truly in the faith. Why? That's a great question to ask. Why is this so? Verse 10. Second half of the verse when it talks about God's discipline. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share his holiness. Friends, Christian, hear me this morning. Being a partaker of the holiness of God is not something that we're waiting to do later. Being a partaker and a sharer in the holiness of God is something that we are called to do right now. And one of the great problems with the evangelical church in the world is that the world is able to look at Christians and give all manner of indictments of unholiness against us. And sadly, most of them stand true. Most of them stand true. The evangelical Western church in particular has become selfish, self-focused, rude, sexually immoral. The list just runs rampant. When you run the statistical analysis between how the world acts and how the quote-unquote church acts, people who self-identify as Christians, a lot of times the numbers are not far off from each other. And then when we try to stand up and we try to talk about the work of Christ and the redemptive power of Jesus and how it transforms lives and changes lives, the world wags its finger back at the church and says, yeah, but you act just like we do. Sometimes worse. Why do I need your Jesus? And there's this call for Christians to participate in the holiness of God. And sadly, so many Christians say, well, I can't. I have abiding sin, so that's just going to have to wait till later. And that's not what this says. Will I be perfect? No. Will I have times where there is evidence of sin? Absolutely. Will I have to continue to wage war with the darkness that's in me all the time? Will I have to gird up my loins and put on the the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith? Yes, I'm going to have to do all of that stuff. Am I daily going to have to remind myself that I am in the trenches waging war first with me and then with those things that are outside of me? 
me. Absolutely. Every day, am I going to have to constantly come back to Christ Jesus? And, and, and like in first John, where it says that, you know, if, if we sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who forgive us of our sins and cleanses of all unrighteous every day. Yes, all these things are true, but that does not negate the call to pursue and live in holiness. And Christian, this is a significant part of what it means to walk with the Lord. And in the moment, it does not seem joyful. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment does not seem joyful, but sorrowful. It is painful to be broken over sin. Hear me, friend. It is painful to be broken over sin. There's nothing joyful about it in the moment that it's happening. Not one thing. It's crushing. It's humiliating. The root where we get the word uh, from, it comes from humble. What does it mean to be humble? It means to be humiliated. But it yields the peaceful fruit of, Of righteousness, it says at the end of verse 11. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Why would righteousness be called the peaceful fruit? Because friends, the greatest conflict that I have. Greatest conflict that I have. It's not with you. It's not with the federal government. It's not with the educational system. It's not with anything, any organization, any entity. The greatest conflict that I have is with myself and it's over my own sinning. And if righteousness takes hold of my life, if I am truly being conformed to the image of Jesus, if I am rightly walking in his ways, If my thoughts are like his thoughts. Then guess what happens to my conflict with myself? It reduces. I get to have the peace of the fruit of righteousness. And so there's a call to action here. This is what I love about this section. Because normally in the scripture, they give you like these big, deep, rich thoughts. And then they don't throw a lot of direct application on it. They don't say, hey, and this is what you need to do. Like A lot of times that's just kind of left to like, just fill that in. It's going to be a little different for everybody. I love it when they move right into a, hey, do this. Thank you. Super helpful for a guy like me. So he gives us call to action. Beginning of verse 12. Therefore, because all these things are true, strengthen weak hands and feeble knees. Now, we could get confused and think that it's talking about, I need to go and strengthen your weak hands and your weak knees. Hasn't been talking about me doing something for somebody else this whole time. We're really quick to find everybody else's stuff that needs to be fixed. Really quick. This has not been talking about that. This has been talking about me dealing with my sin and receiving discipline from God as my father. 
Why would the writer of the Hebrews all of a sudden go, and hey, you know the best way, Miss Paulette, you know the best way to fix sin in your life is to look out there and find out what's wrong with them and help them out. That, no, that is not what it says. It does not say that. The strengthening of the weak hands and weak knees, my weak hands, my weak knees. Make them strong. How do I do that? There's a lot of different ways to do that. We'll get into those in just a second. But I need to strengthen my own weaknesses. I need to make my path straight for my feet. The limb that's lame won't be put out of joint, but will be healed. It's really easy to blow stuff out on a rough, jagged, non-smooth, crooked pathway. But if you have a straight path, you have a smooth path, you have a narrow path, you have a place where you know you're supposed to be walking, it keeps everything the way that it's supposed to be going. Now, of course, all of these are referential to the process of discipleship. All of the things that the scripture points out, how do I keep my path straight? How do I keep my focus on the Lord? How do I uh, have strong hands? How do I have strong knees? How do I move in the right direction? Everywhere else in the scripture, it lays that out for us. By following the word of the Lord, trusting in his word, worshiping with the saints, Offering up prayers. All of the true spiritual disciplines. There's a reason why they're called spiritual disciplines. All of these activities, these means of grace, are the things that strengthen my hands, strengthen my knees, make my path straight, make me walk down that straight path. But then he does offer up an interactive because none of us is doing this by ourselves. We're doing this in community. And so when it gets to verse 14, the continued call to action does extend outside of myself. Pursue peace With all men. Now he's just meddling now. He's gone from preaching to meddling. You really mean peace with all men? Surely you mean peace with some men, the ones I prefer to have peace with. You know, the ones that are most like me and most think like me and most act like me and most have the same self-interest that I've got. The ones that are super easy to be peaceful with. That's the ones you're actually... Got to be some sort of a textual variant there that allows me to read it this way to where I don't actually have to pursue peace with everybody. I can just pursue peace with some people that it's easy to pursue. No. Pursue peace with all men. I'm worried. I know it's true in my life. But I'm worried it's true in most folks in the evangelical West's lives. That when we interact with people. Peace is not usually the first thing that comes to mind. Pursue peace with all men. And there's a second thing to pursue. Notice what it says. Pursue the sanctification Without which no one will see the Lord. All right, so I am called outwardly to pursue peace with all men. And I'm called inwardly to pursue sanctification. That means being made holy. I'm, I'm called to pursue the inner transformation toward holiness. And then the without which no one will see the Lord. Yeah, it could be describing sanctification or it could be describing the compounded idea connected to the verb of both pursuing peace with all men and sanctification. Likely that's the better way to understand it. Without which you won't see the Lord. What? Without sanctification? Yes. And pursuing peace. And then he moves into, in my opinion, just this for me personally, give you a little insight into to how I think. 
my least favorite passage in almost all the Bible. Do not like this. I don't like it at all. Bothers me. When I was prepping for this, I was like, really? This is the one? Why did I pick Hebrews to go through? It's got this in here. I got, no one's going to have to talk about this. I don't like this. See to it, verse 15, that no one comes short of the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many be defiled. Avoid the root of bitterness. And when we get ready to unpack that, he gives an example from the Old Testament, which is what, in my opinion, makes it so awful. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. There's a whole lot of people in the Bible that you don't want to be compared to. Esau's way up there at the top of the list. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Again, full circle, we're coming back to repentance. The idea of having sin chiseled away out of our lives and a move toward holiness. And it, and it all stems from this avoiding the root of bitterness. And friends, I tell you. It is so easy. And you know what? Maybe you've advanced so far ahead in your pursuit of holiness that this really doesn't bother you. And I'm just going to tell you that if that's the case for you, it's causing a root of bitterness to form in my life right now, knowing that about you. But it is a massive struggle for me personally. And it always has been to not get bitter about stuff. Things should go a certain way. And they don't go quite the way you think that they should go. Conversation doesn't go quite the way it should go. Thing at a job doesn't go quite the way you think it should go. Somebody responds to something not quite the way you thought that they should. Somebody, you know, I, I kind of get locked in on my sin and they kind of get locked in on their sin and my sin butt, butts up against next to their sin and there's a little bit of conflict that goes on and it sort of kind of gets smoothed over and resolves just a little bit and, and you know, and it's all kind of, everybody just kind of walks away, you know, and, and you kind of walk away with that. We good? Yeah, we're good. It's really, really hard. To not let that root of bitterness about stuff grow up. Happens in relationships. It happens in tragedy. Why did my family member have to get sick like this? Why do we have to deal with this every single day? Why did I have to be one of the ones that was on the end of the job layoff cutoff? And now we don't have enough money to eat. Why, why did this happen to have to happen in this particular situation? And now it's having this huge negative long-term impact on me and my family. And I'm so frustrated. And it just seemed like it went so much better for them. And why did they get to have such a charmed life? And I had such a hard upbringing. And there's a way that you begin to like devolve into this huge pile of self-pity. And you begin looking at the world and every little thing is against you. And it becomes really hard not to be bitter and angry and sideways and frustrated about all kinds of stuff going on in your life. And this right here says, you know what? 
If you really want a call to action for a better discipline and a severe resistance to sin and a transformation into the holiness of Jesus Christ brought about by the Father's discipline, then you need to strengthen your weak hands and knees. You need to make your path straight. You need to pursue peace with all men and, 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 the, and pursue the sanctification that comes from the power of the Spirit. And you need to avoid the root of bitterness that causes trouble and defiles and makes you look just like Esau of all people. And friends, I'm going to quote a verse about Esau just real quick to remind us how God feels about him. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. You do not want to be compared to Esau. New Testament equivalent would be Judas. You don't want that. And why was Esau the way he was outside of the gods? I know our punt. Here it goes. Well, God sovereignly orchestrated before the foundation of the world that there would be a person called Esau that he would place his hate upon and that would not be part of the covenant. Okay, from the human side of things, why was Esau the way he was? Because he allowed a root of bitterness to grow in him that drove a wedge between himself and the Lord. And he desired the things of the world more than the things of God. He sold out his birthright for one meal. And when it came time to receive the inheritance of the blessing, he was not worthy of receiving it because his eye was on the temporal and not the eternal. And all the rest of Esau's life is marked by angst against everyone and everything that he came in contact with. Esau is the ultimate, it's everybody else's fault guy. And he ended up having a quote unquote great life, became a great nation. But it was a nation that the scripture makes very clear that God set his anger against. And friends, as Jesus said, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Esau gained the world, so to speak, and was outside of the covenant of God. And it all stemmed from the bitterness that he had about God's mandate on his life and how that mandate fell to his brother instead of him. And so this morning... The difficult question that we ask as we close, what sin, what attitude, what inaction, what angst, what frustration, etc. Am I allowing to create bitterness in me? Rather than the joyful discipline of the Lord that moves me to be Christ-like in holiness. Friends, you don't know if there is a problem until you identify one. Until you acknowledge and admit that there is one to be had. What thing, what person, what situation, what problem, what ongoing circumstance, what thing in life am I allowing to be the seed planted in my soul that will spring up, that become the root of bitterness, that will fill my mouth with angst and frustration and anxiety, discontent and a lack of joy and peace? What thing do I need to give over to the Lord? Do I need to throw down? Do I need to allow to be, be
be nailed with Christ to his cross so that it might be replaced with that joyful discipline of the Lord that moves me to Christ-like holiness. Because friends, here's the deal. Bitterness will crush you. Discipline will also crush you. You're going to get crushed either way. If you get crushed by bitterness, it's to your condemnation. If you get crushed by discipline, it's to your salvation. The crushing is coming whether you want it to or not. The end result of you being crushed and then remade is what you're remade into. Will you be remade into that which receives the wrath of God? Or will you be remade into that which has received the salvific blessing of the Lord? It's coming either way. And so I pray for myself today, for you. That whatever root of bitterness there is, that we would lay that down. That like, unlike Esau, we, we wouldn't look at the short-term temporal benefit of our angst and our anger and our frustration and our desire. We would look past that and we would say, no, no. There is something greater to be found in the discipline of the Lord And that is where I will go. That is the path I will walk on. That is the blessing that I will receive. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging texts of scripture like this one. Call us to throw down our bitterness. Call us to embrace the discipline that you bring to us because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us when we allow a a root of bitterness to take hold of our heart and to grow, to expand, to choke out joy, to choke out peace, to choke out holiness. Father, I pray that by your grace and for your glory, you will bring the right and proper kind of discipline into our lives. The kind that causes us to receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we thank you in advance for this work that you will do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you at this time to stand as we sing a song of